When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Province Force Podcast. Welcome to the White Tail Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman, joined this week by Patrick Johnson and Ed Willis. I will remind you again, you can subscribe to these podcasts through Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. And gentlemen, off we go. Uh... We just did some videos, so we'll cover some of that ground for people who, who don't see them and just listen to the podcast. But we wanted to start with the Canucks offensive explosion. Uh, Ed, this team sits fourth overall in the NHL in goals. Are you surprised at all by that? Oh, 100%. I don't think anybody saw that coming when they were trying to devise a scenario that would, you know, where this team would have some success this season. Uh, and, you know, I think as we point out in, in the podcast, it's not like they're getting monster seasons from Pedersen, from Besser. Uh, JT Miller has chapped in. To me, he's kind of the key to the whole thing just the way he's filled in on that line how he's come kind of become the fix-it guy when you know Bo Horvat needs some help they play him with Miller he just up and down the lineup contributing everywhere he goes so consistent and the other part of that is Tanner Pearson who's kind of on pace for I think 30 goals now after uh, after he scored uh, you know in Alex Burrow's night on, on Tuesday night so you know really positive developments for, for the team let's see where they are at the end of the season when they add everything up. But Pearson, and I mean, Pearson's such a good example of a guy that they hoped would be the yeah. player that they picked yeah. up. Bought it, bought low, uh, and you know, after he had a tough time in LA starting the year, then a tough time in Pittsburgh, you know, with a groin issue and that kind of thing. And yeah, he's performing. And really he te- well. he teased it out last yeah. year, you know, yeah. seven in seven in twenty nine, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Which is you know, that's a high twenty, yeah. and yeah. I, I I think expecting anything more out of him. But the thing is, you know, if the, if all those middle guys kind of get to that. 16 to 21, mm-hmm. 22, and now you're talking about Vertanen, you're talking yeah. about Levo, Levo yeah. you're talking about Pearson. That makes a really big difference you in know, the overall Le- scheme of things. And in that same term, yeah, Levo, another great example of a guy that yeah. they were looking, you know, they were looking last year to find some diamonds in the rough. They knew they needed that. You know, there, there haven't been a lot of wingers drafted well by this organization. We haven't seen a lot of that. You need to find them. And you know what? Good teams make good pickups and trades, and they find players that are not terribly useful for other teams, and they've done well. That has been, I would say, has been a, a good strength in, in recent seasons. Now, if this was video, you'd see me smirking only because <laughs> Ed touched on something which I want to ask him about. And it, it's a loaded question for you, so I'm, I'm going to let you go whichever direction you want. And you're speaking about JT Miller. There was a certain tweet from someone involved in the organization ah, yes. that said, oh. not hearing much from critics of the <laughs> JT Miller trade Jim made these days. Followed by, Jim tells me his group is extremely pr- pleased with progress of several of our prospects, including Madden, Pud Colson, and Hoglander. Owner Francesco Aquilini, uh, who 
typically is quite media shy, um, taking to social media to kind of give the middle finger to some people who like to criticize giving up a first round pick for Miller. What did you make of that? Well, yeah, that's fine. You know, they've got scoreboard now. He's he's certainly allowed that. It's to me, he's kind of like picking and choosing his moments. I don't (laughs) remember him tweeting out about how great the Eric Goodbranson trade was or... uh, Gee, what a good idea it was to to flip Jared McCann, <laughs> but be that as it may, you know that 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 that's fine. Uh, I was one of those people who criticized the Miller trade. I thought it was just way too steep a price and too risky to be, pay for a guy who looked at best like a six or a seven on your depth chart among forwards, and clearly he's he's way more than that. Uh, you know, so you know, it, 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 right now it looks like a good trade, and if that first rounder turns out to be somewhere in the you know fifteen to twenty five range, more than fair value. You've got this guy under club control for the next four years. It looks like he's going to be a fit. He's also emerging as a leader on yep. this team. You, you can tell he drives the play a lot of nights. So you know, no fair play, fair play to them. Really good trade by Jim Benning. Let's just maybe not look at the whole history of his <laughs> trades when we look at well, this and, one. And they've got to make the playoffs, too. I mean, that's the thing. The, the trading for Miller was a bet that we're going to make the playoffs yeah. next year. And as or, you said, or at least plant the seed or establish something. Yeah, right? I suppose. I still think they can sell meaningful games in April. I suppose. I just think that, you know, essentially, if Miller, you know, do, if they don't make the playoffs, you know, okay, you're keeping your pick and then hoping next year. But, you know, what it is is they're saying we're making the playoffs and, as you said, we're giving up a draft pick that's like 20. And, you know, yeah. while we have found Brock Besser at that in the past, we're willing to we're willing to make that sacrifice because this is a player that we think is going to make a difference. Side note on Miller, as on the leadership aspect, I do enjoy after, well, at least after wins now, when we come into the room, generally the guy that you hear making the joke about whoever it is that is going to be the first person up to do interviews like last night with Antoine Roussel, it's usually you hear JT Miller shouting something out. Usually, oh look, you know, finally, you know, it's it's good. He's he's a good per- personality, that's for sure. How important is it to have that leadership? I mean, that uh, to Ed's point, I think people people lose their mind in this market if he trades away a fifth round pick, let alone a first. Yeah. Yeah. They've just been treated with such currency in this market. Um, but there's something to be said, and I think I think of the game that they lost in in Pittsburgh. Obviously, I mean teachable moments for young teams last year we talked about it so much with Pedersen how he hit the wall at the end like you need to learn how to play one two three seasons get into the playoffs in the NHL how important is it to bring in veterans who can do that so you're not just doing it with a whole bunch of kids learning on the go I think it's the ability to get along deal with these situations sort of be like okay you know we're in a rough patch we're still going to stay upbeat I mean Chris Tanev and I were talking about Alex Burroughs yesterday and Tanev brought up how tight the group was that he joined in 2011 and how everybody was close and they all they all got along with Alex Burroughs like the, everybody that played with Alex Burroughs liked being with Alex Burroughs that he's a guy that you wanted on your team and you get that sense that in, in Miller's case he is one of those guys that joins into this group this is a tight group these guys get along really well um, they're they're very close off the ice they spend a lot of time because there's a lot of sort of I mean obviously there are older players but there's a lot of guys that are roughly the same age they've sort of shared common interests shared sort of interests away from the ice and and that that matters and so if you have a guy like Miller who comes in who's been on successful teams who's been around and as Vigneault said you know tell him he get he gets it now you know, as a guy that understood what the process was to become a successful, you know, consistent, useful NHLer, 
that he's a guy that comes in and demonstrates that and is a constant reminder for his younger teammates that this yeah, is how Yeah, you know, the other thing that done. stands out uh, for, for me about him is just his age. Like, the Canucks have a lot of guys, a lot of their key players, Hughes, obviously, Patterson, Besser, early 20s. Then from there, you got a ton of guys in their 30s and a little beyond, but there's nobody kind of in that mid-20 range. And I think he comes in, I think he's a really good bridge because I think the Pettersons and Bessers do look up to him because he's been in the league six years. He's played on, you know, a Stanley Cup finalist. He's had some success. And and I think going forward, I think that actually, you know, I, I think his position in the locker room will will, will only be magnified uh, because of that. Um, you know, he's a Horvat is just two years younger. So, you know, they're, they're kind of going to be, you know, the nexus of the leadership group going forward. And I, I think that's important for those young guys. Patrick, I know you're you're uh, busy communicating with someone here uh, as the, the work of a beat writer never goes in. Okay, you know it's not stops. television and you're not Bob McKenzie and this isn't the yeah. trade deadline day. <laughs> you know that, right? What we're hearing is, no, but I wanted to ask you specifically about Quinn Hughes. And, yeah. and you know, Ed brought up that he's one of those young guys. Remarkable season for me because uh, he really does have these wow moments. You know, it's not he's not a guy who the Eastern media are going to wake up and yeah. see, oh, he got four goals last night. Let's talk about him as rookie of the year. But a play last night you noticed, I saw you highlighted on social media. Again, there's a creativity with that kid on the ice that I don't think you see in, in many top prospects. Well, I mean, last week we saw the push with the stick, which I think we, you know, Daniel, you know, we've seen a Sedin example of that. It happens, I think, as I think uh, somebody else on the on the team said, yeah, it happens more often than you realize. You get that little extra push in moments like that, like when he pushed JT Miller on that back check. But last night, there he is. He wins the puck on the boards. He sort of turns himself to protect the puck. But it's one of those moments where you look at you sort of like, okay, he probably doesn't have time to really dig and push off, stride off, get himself. And so he sets himself for the sort of collision he knows that's coming. And instead, instead of sort of being knocked off the puck, instead braces himself and gets literally pushed by the guy that's coming trying to hit him and uses the momentum to get out of the situation. It was just such a great little moment. I, I actually tweeted it. I said, did that really just happen? And uh, Cam Robinson, who notices these things all the time and follows prospects and obviously I imagine had seen him do it before sends me the little video goes he says yes he absolutely did and it's just it's amazing it is an example of not only the sort of talent natural talent level that he has but the understanding like Pedersen of what the equipment can do what his what the you know the the ice can do what he's able to do in a way that we just have never seen before. I don't remember. I mean, we've seen some very talented players in this town, and I don't remember ever seeing anyone saying, hey, I'm going to actually use this check to my advantage in that way. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we've covered this ground many times. The Canucks have never had really an elite defenseman. I mean, you can have an argument about Jovanovski, about Oland, about Lume, who are very, very good, but mm-hmm. I mean... I, Unless Don't sleep on Christian Ehrhoff. He's better than you no, remember, I, and, but you're right. No, no yeah. 100%. I mean, he wasn't here very long, but yeah, I mean, I think he was a huge part of that 2011 group collapsing so quickly. But honestly, if I um, – I'm one of the the last people to, to, to jump on a hype train quickly, but I mean, Quinn Hughes, obviously you see the projection. He's going to be the best defenseman the Canucks have ever had, like clearly to me. I know we're only half a season in, but – but from everything you've seen so far, considering how young he is, if injury doesn't come into it, then yeah. well, I, I just don't know that they've ever had a guy even close to this natural ability before. What you know, what he's done this year, okay, everybody knew he was an elite prospect. Everybody knew maybe down the line. But he has stepped in as a 20-year-old. He runs an NHL power play, a pretty good NHL power play. 
playing 20 minutes a game, playing in a lot of different situations, making the guys around him better. It's like I said, you were thinking maybe two, three years down the road this was possible, but for him to come in and have that instantaneous impact that he's had this season, to me that accelerates this whole Canucks program probably by a year or two. You know, instead of sitting around waiting for this guy, well, no, he comes ready-made, and it looks like he's only going to get better. I've said this before. To me, the most impressive thing about him is just his overall makeup. He was born to this. He was born to elite hockey programs. His dad was a player personnel guy with the Maple Leafs. He's been around the game at the highest level since he was like 10, 11 years old, so nothing really phases him. And you can see it just the way he handles himself in the locker room and on the ice. Um, Ed, you've been a a huge proponent of Jacob Markstrom and the goaltending that the Canucks have had for the last couple of years. Uh, Obviously a very tragic um, or very sad, I think more than tragic uh, personal situation with him losing his father. Now he's left the team and gone back to Sweden. How do you think that impacts him? I I know, you know, he was goaltenders are really like into a rhythm and and how is Demko suited for that role? We saw this obviously earlier in the year when Markstrom really seemed to be in a groove. Obviously, uh, any news of a personal nature like this can kind of knock you out of it. Is the game a good distraction for players in that role, or how, how do you well, that, how do you a, see that playing yeah, out? Yeah, that's of the what year? he said in Edmonton on Friday. It was, it was interesting. There was like a a little scrum, and he had that wonderful moment with Matt Murray in Pittsburgh, where you know Murray lost his father, and he came over, and you know hugged him, rubbed the top of his head, and he was asked about that. And I just kind of, you know, hung back and asked him a couple of times about, you know, does the locker room become your refuge? Does And does do your teammates become your support system? And, you know, he actually gave a very, fairly eloquent answer about it. And yes, I'm inclined to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. You never know. There's no script for these things. I think we've all experienced loss in our life. Uh, and it just kind of, for me, it's always kind of come in waves. It just when you don't expect it, it kind of knocks you on your, off your feet. And a lot of times you're doing okay, and I expect that'll be the case here. But, you know, the guy's competitive. Uh, he's already endured a lot in his season to get to where he is right now. So right now I'd, I'm, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'm also pulling for him. It comes with that closeness I talked about as well. Like this is a group of players that care about each other. We know that they care about Jacob Markstrom. And, and you know, so from his standpoint, if that's something he needs to lean on, he has it there. Um, you know, I mean, his his play last year was very much about him uh, taking hold of the of the style that, that Ian Clark wanted him to play, that sort of stand up more, you know, play yourself vertically as opposed to horizontally. Uh, you know, and, and there have been moments, I think, you know, this year because obviously I think he's dealing with a lot mentally. Perhaps he's lost some focus on that at times and, and hasn't had sort of the outstanding start that maybe we thought he might have if, you know, things were were otherwise. But, you know, I, I think in the end he has a pattern of consistency from last year of success that was based on what his coach put in him. And his coach can point and then say, Jacob, last year you were doing this, this, and this. Let's get back to that. and Let's get focused in on that. And I think there's every reason to think that he can get back to that uh, form he had last year. Patrick, you're a new-ish father. Mm-hmm. Um, you you actually have a real nose for these stories. You've written about the personal lives of some guys on the team and their relationship with their kids and how yeah. maybe that has changed them. Do we take that for granted sometimes? Some that, that, that these guys do have lives and, and circumstances away from the ice and it, it, uh, 
I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but it certainly can impact who who they are as people and where they are in terms of their happiness or their career. I mean, it does tie a little bit into the broader comment we're having about how coaches deal with players. And yeah, and, we're going to get to that, right? But I mean, <laughs> I, I do think there is. Yeah, I mean, I think just as in, in general as a society, we we have. You know, we have an understanding of of the importance of your your home life, of your personal life, how that does affect who you are in sort of the public space, and and that you need to sort of be feeling secure in that and feeling good and and having sort of as we call it mental wellness, not just feeling, you know, n- not just sort of oh yeah, I'm here to do the job. That you really need to be, you know, tied into that. And I think as we said, like we can kind of understand maybe why Jacob Marstrom isn't feeling that great. I think it does make a difference. I mean, I look at you, know, you look at you know, the, a guy like Sven Berchi, who started the year in Utica, brought his family with him, uh, you know, was called back up. They moved back west. And, you know, I think the feeling was that they were going to be back here. But now he's been sent back to Utica. And, you know, he told Ben Burnell this week, essentially, I don't know why I've been sent back down. And you sort of wonder how he's doing because he brought his family with him. And now he's back in Utica and he's a long way from his kid. He wants to be with his kid. That's something that's part of his life. That's part of where, you know, our society has taken itself. And um, I, I think it really does matter. It really does. You know, it, it is who these players, these players are, they have a, this is what they are. This is their job. They, 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 they orient themselves to the world as hockey players, but more and more, they also do uh, talk about themselves in terms of their families. Ed, just before we move on in the coaching discussion, um, you guys are much closer to, to people within the team than me, but I do know someone who knows several players on the team who's told me countless times that the feedback they get from the team is that uh, Sutter is one of the most important parts that in terms of how the players interact, how they get along. You know, we know the fans, it's a, you know, it's always like you make millions of dollars or no sympathy. And Sutter's one of those guys that people don't see the value in and want him to get him out of town. You've been around a lot of good teams and a lot of bad teams. How important is that team chemistry? And obviously on the ice has to come first. You can't have a guy who's like the glue guy who's terrible and a yeah, liability. Yeah. But how important is it really? Well, it, it, to me, it's almost a given on, on every good team. I'm, I'm sure if I like really stretched and started to think there's probably a bad team where there were division or a good team where there were divisions. But, you know, hockey is such a unique culture and it, and it, it requires – all those things we've talked about ad nauseum, about chemistry, about, you know, team play, about selflessness, about leadership and all, all those things. I mean, it, it's really interwoven into the mythology of the game. So I, I, I just can't really conceive of a good team that had those internal divisions. And, and Sutter is a lot of things. He's he's a Sutter. He's been in the league for a while. He's he played in Pittsburgh, so he's played with great players. Um, he, he's very natural, very, very easygoing. I think he probably knows when to dial it up when it needs to be. But they've got a lot of guys like that in that room. You know, Beagle is certainly very, very very similar. And and I think when they've been out of the lineup, I think it's shown up at a couple of key times in games that Pittsburgh won for me stood out. It just where they really needed kind of a veteran guy just to kind of calm the waters when things are going haywire and, and they didn't really have that guy. And to me, that's what Sutter and Beagle are. Now, Let's get into the, uh, as, as you referred to it earlier, the crow in the room. Yeah. Um, this is this is something for me which has been stewing kind of since the Don Cherry incident where people, whether internally or externally, start throwing rocks at hockey culture. And of course, then we had Babcock being fired and then all these stories of Babcock, maybe, I don't know how you want to frame it, that he's a jerk. 
obviously the Vancouver yeah, Connection that's pretty is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, uh, that that one does the job. Well, no, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. and then there's Bill Peters. Yeah, as this, wow. the discussion of hockey coaches, obviously the racism. Um, we've seen how that story has flourished as well, and now Mark Crawford, who we know well from his time here, uh, being pulled into the mix. How much of this is revisionist history? How much of it is a serious concern about hockey culture? And is this changing? Is it an issue? Is it a problem? I, I think this is, you know, I, I'm not even sure if you can even like even attempt to make light of the situation, but this is hockey's Me Too movement for me. It, it, it's it, it's going back and redressing wrongs that people have been holding uh, 10, 15, 20 years in some cases, and and, and, and they want their stories told. They, they, they want to be heard. Clearly, it had a dramatic effect on, on Harold Drugan, on Brent Sopel, on Dan Carcello, all these guys that are stepping up now. And that doesn't end. And, and there's uh, hockey's immediate reaction uh, when these things come to light is, is it, it kind of folds in on itself. You know, they, they hide behind the parapet and, and outsiders aren't allowed in and you don't understand. This is our game. This is the way we do things. No, no, it isn't. It, it isn't that way anymore. There's a completely different set of standards. Now, we can have two conversations. I, I'm not entirely comfortable with viewing things that happened 20, 30 years ago through the lens of 2019 and, and judging and condemning people when, when standards were completely different. But I do think it's a conversation that needs to be happening with the game. I think ultimately it is healthy. And yes, I do think things have changed in the last 10 years. I think it comes down to that second point, which is where do you want it? Where, do, where are we now? Where should we be going? Uh, you know, are there lessons? There's always lessons to be learned. I, I'm not sure you, I'm not sure you gain anything by going hard saying, listen, well, look what he did then and so on and so forth. But I do think you gain something saying, Look what he did then and try to understand what that means now. And I do think the conversation, I mean, people have pointed out, well, do we know what Crawford thinks now? I said, well, you know, as I touched on in my story yesterday, we did, it did briefly get touched on when he was here last March that he, he got asked essentially, what's it like being back in head coaching? He brought up, you know, it was a side comment, but he brought up, well, you know, like, like the players, the referees have come up in a different age and I can't yell at them the way I used to. But then he goes on to say, to be honest, that's probably a good thing because if you look, just go to YouTube and see how I used to lose my marbles. Now, there's more to be discussed about that because of the things that have been brought up. And there, there is, you know, it's not, again, it's not every coach. There, It's just that there are examples of coaches that have you know, persisted and it's something going back. I mean, you can go back to Don Cherry in the Colorado Rockies in 7980, a team that was going nowhere and, and Cherry had no idea. And you hear there's stories that have long been out there. Like Don Selesky saying blue, the dog would have been a better, better coach, you know? And, and, uh, you know, Mike, Mike McEwen, who was their like number one defenseman and Cherry pulling him off the ice, literally, and slamming him at the, at the end of the bench. I mean, there, there's a pattern of, of coaching that was there for a long time. We don't think about it much anymore because it just doesn't happen. And that's what made... Does, does it stuff. not happen, though? I, well, I mean, what I was going to say is that's what made P, what Peters did stand out so much because it was a recent thing. And we don't think... Well, I guess what I should say, we don't think it happens much anymore. And and so as a result, we when we hear about Peters, it's so much more stark 
that you're like, oh, well, that no, that's not coaching. We've come to a different place where, you know, as I talk, I asked Travis Green about his sort of understanding of how to communicate with players. He goes, yeah, you got to be empathetic. He thought about some of the things in his own experience. You know, he's told stories about Al Arbor. You know, he tells he told a story at last year's coaching conference, or last summer's NHL coaching conference during the draft about you know when he was a young player and and you know he he was uh, in in on Long Island and he was minus four after a game and he thought that you know this was the end. He was being sent back down to the AHL and he realizes there's a pair of feet standing in front of him. He looks up and it's Al Arbor and Al Arbor says, "Kid." You know, don't worry about it. I want you to forget what happened tonight, and I want you to get focused in on our next game when we're going to be playing against Mario Lemieux. And and Green said that really stuck with him. That that was a, that was a coach that was looking to build him up and saying, "Kid, you know, life moves along. Get better next game." And that I think has driven a lot of his own coaching philosophy when he talks about the need to engage with players and talks about the need to support them, encourage them, and make them better. I mean, you still have to hold the line and you have to say, no, we're not going past this, but you don't do it by physical force. And that's something obviously that Bill Peters never quite understood. And I think that that's where Green to me is a bit of a fascinating study because, you know, you talk about a player being a bridge. I think as a coach, he almost is as well. You've got, you know, there's still some real old school guys in the league, guys like Tortorella and, of course, had Babcock there as as an example. And then there was this trend towards the young cerebral coach, the guy like your your Bilesmas and your Dallas Greens, guys who can relate to the players and think of it, the game a little more smartly. And yet none of them have had great success. If you're going to put him in that, I mean... Stanley Cup side for Boswell. So that might have been due to the other guys on that team. But you know, like he hasn't gone on and had great success elsewhere. Is there a successful style to coach in the NHL today? Before I go on, are we talking about Dallas Green, the former Philadelphia Phillies manager, this sorry. Canadian singer? Dallas Eakins. Dallas Eakins. Ah, there I, we I, are. I do this with Travis Green and Trent Green all the time. He's never played quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs or came to the BC Lions for a cup of coffee. But yeah, it's Dallas Eakins. Sorry. I think I, I I think the model is now, um, it's not so much the type as the approach. And there was a really wonderful piece of uh, Rick Talka talking about his philosophy. Now, now, there couldn't be a more old school guy, right? He played for Mike Keenan, uh, who's actually one of Mike Keenan's whipping boys early on in his his career. So just imagine the things he would have seen, saw, experienced. But he talked about this, like, kind of collaboration. And, you know, they say it sounds like teachers at my wife's school where you're empowering kids, where, you you know, you're trying to seek solutions together. Obviously, there's an, an authority there uh, that, that it's kind of the ultimate trump card. But, but the whole process of how you get there has changed so much. I want to just dovetail something. So much of this whole debate is phrased around this idea that, that, that coaches are a power unto themselves that coaches really don't have to answer to anybody. They're this all-seeing, all-knowing judge and jury, the ultimate authority on everything. If you go back over the history of the game, you just think of all the wrongs that have arisen out of that position. And I'm going to go back to Alan Eagleson, and I know he wasn't a coach, but how he was allowed to get power, how he was allowed to abuse it, and it was because the game wasn't it, it never really challenged authority the way it should have. People who were in positions of power were just kind of granted this immunity. And I think you can draw I'm gonna draw I'm gonna go all over the map here. I was in I was covering the Western League when Graham James was in power in, in Swift Current. And that was another thing. It was just he's the coach, you know, he knows what he's doing. Who are we to judge him? And and 
every case along the way, I think it's arisen from that one thing, and I think that's finally changed. So when I talk about this being he- healthy for the game, ultimately, that's kind of what I'm talking about. So, and Patrick, we had a conversation earlier this week when we were talking about where to take the story and, you know, maybe some bigger picture stuff and some, you know, where the, when you're telling me about some of the stuff that was coming out that you were hearing about Crawford. One of the things that, and again, Ed, this is all over the map, to, to go to what Ed said about hockey culture folding in on itself, anytime anyone tries to raise some of these issues, it's like, there's so much good in hockey, you don't, they feel attacked. My issue is, as Ed talks about going back to the WHL and everything else, hockey is, we know the Montreal Canadiens from failing hands, I pass yeah. the torch. This It's been a theme of this podcast, this mentorship, this passing down other generations, this learning. Uh you hear these horror stories all the time about eight and nine-year-old kids playing hockey, having to show up in suits, never getting on the ice because they just want to be on the rep team, even though they're the last guy on the bench. Like there are guys out there right now in charge of nine and 10-year-old kids who don't have a hope in hell of making the NHL, yet they're trying to emulate NHLers and they're trying to follow Torts and Keenan and whoever else you want to put on that hamster wheel. I'm not suggesting the game has a problem, but I'm just suggesting people should listen and maybe look at some new ways to do things and not always look at copying the guys you see on TV every, every Saturday because that's how we ended up with the Cult of Don Cherry. Well, and it, you know, it, it's something that you know well from your own coaching experience. And the, yeah, but I find the culture talk is a no, bit but, different. No, but I was just, what I was going to say was that, that the, the way forward is to make sh- – is to – focus on coach education and give coaches an understanding of what it is they're actually doing, what they have in front of them. And it ties a little bit to what you're talking about, you know, the educational experience. We look at the way things shifted. I mean, I know this obviously from firsthand experience, having been a teacher, uh, you know, and being, you know, sort of at the leading edge of where education now is when I was a student myself and that it's the student-centered idea that, that, that the kid is involved in the process. Yes, there is in the end a teacher, a coach who is an authority figure who has to sort of say, okay, well, we're going to do this now. But, you know, it ties into something Chris Higgins once said to me uh, earlier this year when he talks about coaches. You have to believe 90% of what they're saying. And, and you know, if, if the coach is doing things that, that strike you as weird, as odd, you're already, as a coach, going to be losing your athletes. And I think there's a lot of a lot to be done at lower levels in 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 coaching hockey, uh, in many sports and, and, and working with coaches to help them. What are you actually trying to accomplish here? What are you actually going to get out of coaching a season of grade of, of eight, nine, 10 year old hockey players? You know, what do you, what's the outcome you want from this? Sure. You want them to win the games and you want them to be more successful than they've been before, but you also want them to come out, out of it as better hockey players and making a better hockey player involves not just how they, sort of present themselves because that's that's the beginning of how you can become a successful person a successful player it, it's not the end and and that was always one of my big beefs with cherry was that he'd somehow present well if you show up wearing a suit and tie then clearly you've made it that's and it. stand that's up for you your need. teammates and yeah yeah, yeah you exactly. know and, and don't you know don't and also, stand out don't be an individual don't stand, which is ironic because this is another anecdote from the end of the 1979 80 rocky season was that don cherry who knows he's done shows up to his last game wearing a pair of cowboy boots and a cowboy hat trying to say look at me you know you're just like you can't square it with this persona that no, that's kind of been his whole his whole shtick which it, is the it, ultimate bizarre, irony right? right you know it's just anyway uh, but that's, that's the side right. point. it's, it's yeah. about the team no yeah. one individual Except and, you know, and he's wearing yeah. a lime green suit with an electric yeah. orange tie <laughs> yeah so at the end of the day no it comes down to how 
not just how we talk about you know coaches at the NHL level, but it's what we're trying to what we're what we're asking from our coaches at the youth level. And a lot of times, I think it's because coaches are sort of stuck. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to emulate this person. That's what I'm stuck with, and that's something I think that needs to be focused on. Yeah, no, I, it, but I, yeah, I think your point's well taken, Paul. If, if I understood it correctly, it was a while ago. Um, <laughs> what do you love the little punch across your shots? Is that you for talking too long? And I was going to say nice things about Ed for having a modern music reference for once. You know, he talked about Dallas Green. That was really good. Yeah, well, I never really heard one of his songs, but uh, I know who he is. No, but 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 but, and and I I don't think you can divorce what happens at the highest level of the games from its effect on the culture of the game. And I think that you know, again, this idea of the coach is the kind of like 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 the despot, the 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 totalitarian, all all those things. I think that's what's in the process of being reassessed. And when it's done at the highest level, I think it you know it, it it creeps down. I think that process is already started I think it's well on its way but I think for it to really be entrenched um, there, there was a great Alan Walsh the, uh, the the player agent and I can just see people all over the Western League lighting their shirts on fire he tweets out this thing that all the coaches that have been involved in these things have one thing in common they came up through the Canadian Hockey League and, and you know the reaction that's going to yep. get uh, unfortunately truth in advertising too I, I mean, I covered the Western League in the 80s, and some of the things you saw and some of the things you heard, again, looking back now, you just shake your head at, but it was accepted. It was part of the norm. And it was kind of, that was the culture of the game at the time. So, you know, we, we, we've got to flip the script here. We've got to start talking about a different game, a different way of doing things, uh, a different hierarchy within the game. Does Mike Babcock get another job? That's a really good question. I was really wondering that because this is the ultimate case of, you know, why it was Torrey's kept getting hired, right? Yeah. Because he offers that hope of an instant turnaround. You know, we ha- we bring this guy in, and you've seen it in other sports too. You know, football, you hired John Gruden because he's going to turn this thing around like that. And it's seldom that easy. And, and I just, I, I was kind of thinking that before. And then when the Johan Franson stuff came out, I went, geez, this guy is toxic right now. I don't know how he rehabilitates that image. And it's the same thing with Bill Peters and the same thing with Crawford. I'm not trying to lump in what they all did in, in the same thing. But but right now there's a black cloud hanging all over all of them. I'm not sure if they are hireable, but they've got to go. They've got to go out in the wilderness and really rehabilitate their image and then maybe come back to the game. I, I think. I think the rehabilitation for Babcock is easier because, I mean, in the end, he's it's a, he's a jerk. He's not an abuser. He played mind games. You know, at least that's where the story stands at the moment. What I'm saying is we don't know that he's choked anyone. Yeah, <laughs> right. And whereas if that's you know, where the line is. Yeah, I mean, but I think that is. I mean, think that isn't. It is actually a very Physical important abuse, distinction, yeah. right? And uh, you know, I think in in Babcock. I mean, Babcock's case is also more complicated because he's still being paid by the Leafs and he's been paying a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So whoever comes along is going to have to find a way to replace that. Um, I do think there are probably places, you know, you think about this league and obviously we can look at ourselves and coverage of some teams in this league is not as extensive as it is in other places. And, uh, you know, I think there are perhaps scenarios where he does show up. I don't think he'll end up in Seattle. I don't think that's a spot that makes any sense, but there could be somewhere else down the road. And as you said, it there is still that notion of, you know, oh, you know, we're halfway through the season. Maybe we can get a guy that can come in and fix and turn the, turn the, the bus around, like say, like Craig Berube last year. Um, I, th- I I think there are scenarios where he could still yet make a comeback. 
Okay, great stuff, guys. I think we've run out of time. I know, Patrick, you've got to get off to practice and uh, get a story for us. Ed, thanks for joining us again. Thanks to our producer, Juanita Ng. Remind you again, you can subscribe to this directly through Apple Podcasts. Get the white towel delivered to you every week. Also, watch our videos on our websites, theprovince.com, vancouversun.com. Uh, follow our 50th anniversary Canuck Moments and get your posters. Yes, Kurt Ridley posters still available for you there. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. And Ed, remember, be a good mentor to Patrick.